welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Christopher John Sprigman, Professor of Law at NYU School of Law. We will discuss his article, Congress's Article Three Power and the Process of Constitutional Change, which will be published in the NYU Law Review. So welcome back to the show, Chris. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, my pleasure. This article is really fascinating, provocative, and and I love it. And I'm really looking forward to talking to you, not only about the article, but about the project more broadly and how you think about it. But but for listeners who might not be intimately steeped in the sort of minutia of the Constitution... I wonder if you could start by just kind of laying out what exactly Congress's Article Three power is, what it provides, and why you think it could enable Congress to avoid constitutional or judicial review of constitutional decisions in many, if not necessarily all, situations. Okay, so let me start with judicial review. So We here in the United States have a very powerful uh, institution of judicial review, meaning uh, a lot of issues that Congress might decide on um, get uh, reviewed by courts. Um, Statutes that Congress passes regularly get overturned by courts. That, that, if you think about it for a second, is a very is a very powerful um, uh, role for courts to play in a democracy. They take things that the people's elected representatives do, statutes, and they, they scrap them. Um, we have developed in this country uh, a very high tolerance for that. In fact, almost a reverence for it, or maybe even explicitly a reverence for it. That has always seemed a little bit odd to me, not just to me, but to others. Um, what I'm exploring in this paper is if we wanted to move away from a system of what I call unqualified judicial supremacy, meaning a system where courts always have the last word, and in particular, the Supreme Court always has the last word on the constitutionality of what Congress does. If we wanted to move away from that and to something a little bit more moderate, to something a little bit more mixed, where on certain occasions, Congress could override courts' interpretation of the Constitution, courts' review of what Congress does, how would we do it? Now, to an American, I think this might be a pretty surprising idea that we might want this, but I I do think I have some experience that gives me a little bit of a different perspective, which is when I was younger, I lived in South Africa because I clerked in South Africa for the Constitutional Court, and I taught constitutional law in South Africa at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. And if you take, I found, you know, an American schooled in an American law school out of there culture, and you kind of bombard them with the details of how a different system of constitutional democracy works. And I was getting bombarded. I was both teaching constitutional law and essentially helping to practice it at the court. Um, It it shakes up some of your ideas and and things about American constitutional law that you might have thought were inevitable, just all of a sudden they seem like choices. And I think, you know, judicial supremacy and especially unqualified judicial supremacy is a choice that we've made. It's it's not actually written into the Constitution. It's not necessary. Um, So I started asking, well, how would we unmake it if we made that choice? 
In the paper, you give a reading of the Constitution that permits Congress to exclude judicial review in many, if not necessarily all, circumstances. Sort of, how does that work textually in relation to the Constitution? I mean, how would Congress go about actually doing that under Article Three? Right. So my my approach to constitutional interpretation starts with the text. I think that's a fairly healthy way to approach a written constitution generally. So when I look at the text of Article Three of the Constitution, I see that the only court, the only federal court that is mandated by the Constitution is the Supreme Court. The lower federal courts aren't mandated at all. Congress has the power to decide whether to create or not to create, to establish or disestablish even federal courts below the Supreme Court. So let's start there. The power to make or unmake those courts um, has been understood historically also as the power to limit their jurisdiction. So you can make them to do certain things. Just because you make them doesn't mean they have to do all things. And that's always been the way Congress has acted. So from the first Judiciary Act in 1789, they created lower federal courts, but they limited their jurisdiction. And the paper goes through the kind of historical development of the lower court's jurisdiction. Lower courts, for example, gained broad criminal jurisdiction fairly late in the game. There were many years of the Republic where they didn't have it, right? State courts were basically the criminal courts. Um, So it's pretty clear that courts can limit. I mean, I I think it's clear that courts can limit, uh, that Congress can limit lower court jurisdiction. With respect to the Supreme Court, there's explicit text. The Article Three of the Constitution empowers Congress to make exceptions to the courts, the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction. Now, you know, keep in mind the appellate jurisdiction of the Supreme Court is distinguished from the Supreme Court's original jurisdiction. The Supreme Court's original jurisdiction is very, very narrow. Most of it basically boils down to boundary disputes between states. That original jurisdiction is established in the Constitution. It it can't be added to and it can't be subtracted from. The rest is appellate jurisdiction. You know, 99% of the court's docket is appellate jurisdiction. And there the Constitution says explicitly that Congress can make exceptions to that jurisdiction. So my argument is Congress can use its power to strip lower court jurisdiction and to make exceptions to Supreme Court jurisdiction, uh, the, the result of which would be that Congress could remove judicial review on the federal level um, f- uh, in, in a particular case or over a particular issue. I think they can also do the same with respect to states. Congress has the power to limit state jurisdiction over federal questions. But even if they couldn't do the same to state courts, I don't think it really matters much. I don't think state courts have the power to actually restrain the federal government in the way that federal courts have done. Um, So, you know, I can give you a couple examples of how this would work out if Congress decided to take this up as a strategy. I think that the effects could be very profound. Well, so yeah, I mean, why don't you why, why don't you explain how this would work in practice? Like, imagine that Congress wanted to remove some particular question from Supreme Court uh, jurisdiction to prevent Supreme Court review of of legislation. What would it do? How would it do it? And why wouldn't the Supreme Court be able to do anything about it? Yeah. So let me let me uh, try to tie this to the moment we're living through where there's a there's a potential at least for the democrats to retake the white house and to retake the senate so imagine you know this is not guaranteed to happen by any means but imagine you know we 
we have a situation where as of January 2021, it's a unified government controlled by the Democrats. And imagine that um, that unified government sets out to make a whole bunch of reforms. Okay, so here's a reform. During this pandemic, um, the wealthiest people in America have increased their wealth by about $80 billion. Right? America is a very unequal country. The pandemic has made it more unequal. Um, this inequality leads to a whole bunch of both economic and political difficulties. And the new Democratic majority decides that it's going, going to address this by putting a wealth tax into place. Now, you know, a wealth tax um, faces a constitutional question, or at least creates a constitutional question, which is whether it's the kind of direct tax that is subject to apportionment. Um, if it is, it's it's going to be struck down because it's it's very difficult to apportion a wealth tax since there's a very significant difference in wealth among the states. New York has a lot of wealthy people, um, you know, Mississippi fewer. So uh, what would Congress do? Congress would pass a, a statute enacting a wealth tax. You know, President Biden would sign it, maybe. And... If that happens, um, Congress could include in the statute a provision stripping courts of jurisdiction, so stripping federal courts and state courts of jurisdiction. Now, if they've done that, what have they done? They, they've stated that th they interpret the Constitution to permit this tax, um, and they're not going to they're not going to give courts the final say over that. They're they're in effect going to give the people the final say over that. Because if, if the wealth tax is unpopular, or if Congress's strategy for insulating its decision from judicial review, which is, after all, in this country, the, the normal expectation that Congress's work will be reviewed by judges, if, if that's unpopular, then the decision is likely to spark a backlash, um, a political mode of constitutional enforcement. But if the decision's popular, and if that popularity endures then what we have is Congress has, in fact, qualified judicial supremacy. It has, in a sense, taken back interpretive authority for itself. This may be a little circular, in a sense, but like, what has the Supreme Court said about the constitutionality of Congress engaging in the kind of jurisdiction stripping from the Supreme Court that you're talking about? So Congress hasn't said anything definite for a long time. Um, back after the Civil War and in the McArdle case, the court faced a statute that stripped federal court jurisdiction to hear challenges to some Reconstruction era laws. Um, and these challenges uh, were due process challenges. Um, the court said, well, you know, they've stripped our jurisdiction. We can't look at the motives for that stripping. We, we basically just stand down. We don't have jurisdiction. We can't proceed in the cause. So that is, you know, that is shortly after the Civil War. So 1870s, that is, however, a clear statement of Congress's Article Three power. Now, since then, the court has mused on occasion. It hasn't actually held, but it, it has said in dicta that if, if Congress uses its Article Three power, strips jurisdiction in a way that violates some other part of the Constitution, that that, that, that will not be upheld. There's actually 
a Second Circuit decision, Battaglia, um, uh, from decades ago, that from the 40s, I believe, that actually takes the same approach. Um, I don't actually think that's right. And, you know, it's, it's not a holding. It's, it's a kind of musing. I explained in the article that the Constitution doesn't tell you one way or the other whether the specific text in Article 3 can be used to override specific text outside of Article 3 or whether the specific text outside of Article 3 overrides Congress's power to strip jurisdiction under Article 3. Um, that, that is an unresolved question um, that the Constitution poses. I actually think, you know, law professors can argue back and forth. I've, I've read arguments about, you know, the Supreme Court's essential role. I don't think they're particularly persuasive. Um, I think realistically, if Congress seizes this power, if Congress uses it in ways that are popular to promote policies that are socially beneficial, Congress will succeed. Um, it the, the power is in the use. Um, if courts resist, um, it, again, if Congress chooses well, um, courts will be beaten back. Well, so you're not the first person, the first law professor, first legal scholar to have talked about jurisdiction stripping. I wonder if you could just kind of contextualize the work that you're doing in relation to other people who've spoken about the issue and sort of highlight what makes your project different from what people have said in the past and kind of what you think they're missing? So there's a ton of scholarship on this and has been for many years. Um, it falls into, there are lots of permutations, there are lots of niches, but let me just try to describe it as best I can. So there are, there are a group of people who propose what are commonly referred to as internal limitations on Congress's power to strip jurisdiction, that is, limitations internal to Article 3. Um, there are a bunch of different arguments for those internal limitations having to do with, for example, how federal ju jurisdiction is granted in Article 3. I go through those arguments in the paper. I, do, I don't think they're right. Um, then there are a bunch of people who argue for what I would call external limitations. So the idea that the due process clause limits Congress's power to strip jurisdiction. So text outside of Article 3 limits Congress's Article 3 power. On that front, you know, there are a lot of people who say, well, these are the limitations. Um, my view, and there are some scholars who share this view, is no, that those limitations are, you, you can argue for them, you can argue against them. The co Constitution doesn't really answer the question. It just poses it. The, 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 that's true of a lot of things in the Constitution, right? We don't have a, you know, a complete Constitution. We have a, a really kind of sketchy one. Um, so that question is going to be answered more by what Congress does than what courts or law professors say. There are some scholars who say, well, you know, you can't, Congress cannot exercise its Article Three power in a way that interferes with the Supreme Court's essential role. I think these theories are basically just cooked up. Um, if you look at the Supreme Court's, quote, essential role, unquote, I mean, one thing you can say is, yeah, its essential role is its original jurisdiction. That's the jurisdiction that the Constitution makes mandatory. 
that jurisdiction is basically a pipsqueak. It's not a giant. So whatever the Supreme Court's essential role is, it seems to me, if you read it off the Constitution, it's pretty small. And then in terms of, you know, what the Supreme Court's essential role has become, that was largely a creature of Congress's making, right? So Congress legislated um, much of the Supreme Court's jurisdiction. And my point is it can unlegislate it. Um, I think, you know, the, the thing that I really differ uh, from the scholarship that comes before on is my kind of overall understanding of, again, what is necessary to democratic constitutionalism and what is a choice. So I think judicial supremacy is a choice. I think unqualified judicial supremacy is a choice and actually a pretty radical choice that some people have made in the past or have told us that you know this, the United States is committed to. I don't think we've committed to it. I look abroad and I see other countries, other constitutional democracies that do things quite differently. Even if we look north to Canada, um, I talk a bit about this in the paper, they have an element of their charter, the notwithstanding clause that permits not just the federal legislature, but provincial legislatures to explicitly override court decisions interpreting the meaning of the Canadian charter. Now, you know, that is at least at a general level, a mechanism that is analogous to the mechanism that I am proposing. Um, Canada has, you know, survived as a liberal rights regarding state. Um, If we moved away from unqualified judicial supremacy towards something more moderate, um, so would we. Well, so as you acknowledge in the paper, I mean, in some ways, your proposal is an extension of Bruce Ackerman's and others' ideas about kind of constitutional moments, like moments in which concepts of what the Constitution does and requires change, even without a sort of formal amendment procedure. But you take it a step further, I think, and say, you know, maybe Congress should can and should make these kinds of changes in a more kind of deliberate, explicit way. Why shouldn't we be concerned that what you're proposing would make constitutional change too easy? Well, we should be concerned. I mean, I think think constitutionalism is inherently a a field that, you know, uh, raises dangers that that identifies dangers of self-governance. So, you know, the, the, the objection here is that if we allow Congress to um, override Supreme Court decisions, we get, you know, a lot of change. We get um, we get demagogues who come to power and change basic order of things and that, you know, the people can't discipline um, that process. Again, that may be true. Um, that, that, that may actually happen. It, it also may be the case that in the society we're living in now, which has incredibly powerful judicial review, basically unqualified judicial supremacy that, you know, political actors can run roughshod over the constitution and courts for various institutional reasons are unable to do anything about it. Right. So we, we, we see, I think it's fair to say now, um, you know, a significant risk of, having a corrupted election um, and the courts essentially being in a position to do nothing about it. Uh, so again, like democratic self-governance is a dangerous business. Um, constitutionalism is one mechanism that we've developed for 
um, trying to smooth out some of those dangers. It, it can be helpful. It can also be a little bit of a narcotic. Um, and I, I think in our case, you know, uh, our reliance on courts, our tendency to, to, to point at something that some politician is doing and say that's un- illegal, that's unconstitutional. And then we, once we, we are done pointing, we expect the courts to take care of it. That, that is as much a part of the problem as anything. Well, so one thing that I couldn't help notice when I was reading your paper was, you know, you based the argument in the text of the Constitution, in the text of Article 3. But I guess from a realist perspective, I can't help but wonder, I mean, does it matter whether the argument you're making is consistent with the text of Article 3 or not? Or is, in some respects, the argument that you're making a kind of extra constitutional argument about the kind of scope and power of democratic governance. So whether the argument I'm making has a basis in the text of the constitution matters to me. Uh, So I think I'm a legal realist, but I'm a lawyer. So I, I want to see that my arguments come from something other than what I think is good or what I prefer. Uh, I, I, I am committed to, um, you know, to abiding by the Constitution's commands where I can discern them, even though I'm, I'm enough of a realist to, to understand that discerning them is incredibly difficult and fraught. Look, I, I look at Article 3, what I see there is relative clarity. I see that Congress has enormous power to shape the jurisdiction of federal courts. The question, though, and this is where my legal realism comes in. The question is whether Congress will actually do it. And if they do it, right, if they take this responsibility onto themselves, whether they'll do it in a way that is politically adept enough, they'll explain it well enough to the American people where people will see the, 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 the benefits, they will see the promise of the strategy rather than simply reacting in this kind of knee-jerk way that people have on occasion reacted to the ideas that I, that I describe in the article, which is that that's just, that's just not the way we do things. I mean, that's true. It's not the way we've done things for a while. It doesn't mean that it doesn't make any sense. Well, so you give a bunch of different examples of kind of comparative examples of other countries and how they do constitutional structure in the article, all of which were really interesting, but I couldn't shake the feeling on one level, what you're describing is parliamentary supremacy, aren't you? I don't think so. I don't think I'm describing parliamentary supremacy in the following way. So um, over the last you know, couple of centuries, the American people have kind of imbibed constitutional values. We, 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 we started, you know, as Tocqueville said, by turning every political issue into a legal issue. Um, that has really created a culture, I think, an enduring culture of um, the expectation of judicial review. That is the sense that Congress doesn't just get to do what it wants, that, that Congress has to, to act lawfully and that th- there's a check. Which means that if Congress takes up this Article Three power, it is going to face a lot of skepticism. People are going to look at this. And this is going to be a signal that they should pay attention and that they should make sure that what's being done seems right to them, is acceptable to them. 
I don't think this is going to be an easy path for Congress to follow. But here's the alternative. I mean, just to speak plainly, we are quite potentially at, at the, the break now of, of a real generational shift in political preferences um, where a new coalition comes to power that, that, that wants to reform very substantially American society, the American economy on, on racial issues, on quality issues, on access to education issues, on healthcare issues, change you know, is on the agenda. Imagine that a federal judiciary that's been stocked with appointees, young appointees who are going to be around for the next two or three decades, stocked during the dying days of the old GOP political coalition, set up the kind of opposition to this change that the Supreme Court set up in the early years of the New Deal before Franklin Roosevelt basically threaten them into submission with his court packing plan. Now, we could react the way we reacted before, which is by threatening to pack the court. You know, that's a political solution to a political problem. I think, you know, that that's going to create the kind of backlash that it did when Franklin Roosevelt tried to do it in the 30s. I think the Article 3 option is explainable to people as a constitutional mechanism that can be used to address this situation, one which is not, you know, in its essence, merely political, but is also constitutional. I I, I guess the, the question I can't help but ask myself is, does Congress really want this power? I mean, the fact that it hasn't done it already, does that suggest that maybe Congress or kind of our political order likes things the way they are and doesn't actually want Congress doing what you're suggesting? Look, I don't think we know. If these were ordinary times, and this was just a contest between Democrats and Republicans for control of our political institutions, you know, I would say that when a party gains power, it, it, typically, it typically shaves down its ambitions. But, but I just don't you know, I think it's entirely possible at the moment that, you know, we're just not in that mold anymore. The economy is in tatters. The society is just divided in in a way that I, I think hasn't, hasn't, we haven't seen in a long time. Um, there's enormous disquiet um, on so many issues. And I think if you know, again, if a political coalition, if the, if the Democrats come to power and the political coalition that puts them into power basically gets very little of what it wants, you know, the Democrats aren't going to be in power for very long. Right. And maybe they realize that um, if they do, maybe they, they start reaching for strategies that allow them to reform this country, the way Franklin Roosevelt reformed this country in the early 1930s, um, on that scale, or even bigger, that allows them to kind of meet the moment. And if if they do, this is a mechanism they should think about. If if, if that's not what their appetite is, then, you know, woe be it onto them. I don't think they're going to last. Chris, in in closing, I mean, it seems to me that your paper is, on some deep level, proposing a really profound shift 
in the way that we think about constitutionalism and what we do when we do the constitution in sort of historical American terms. I wonder if you agree with me. I mean, do you think that's really a shift or do you think that what you're proposing is actually consistent with what people already expect? And if it is a shift, do you think that's a problem? Yeah. So I think it is a shift, maybe not in the way you're thinking. So here's the way I think about how I'm proposing people think differently. So when people think about the Constitution and they think about democracy, they think of those two things as being hand in glove. They think about it being an unproblematic relationship, right? The Constitution is democracy. The Constitution supports democracy. I don't see it that way. I see the relationship between the Constitution and democracy as being complex. It's it's both mutually supportive and intention always. The Constitution structures and helps create the conditions for democracy It also frustrates and limits democracy. Um, It does so, at least on the surface, in the interest of protecting individual rights. I'm I'm not sure it does a great job of that, to tell you the truth. I think it may be falling down, at least in some parts of that job. But this relationship is complex. More constitutionalism doesn't always mean better democracy. There's there's a certain amount of constitutionalism that helps our democracy express itself in liberal rights regarding ways. And then there's too much that stifles democracy, that drains the life out of it, that takes decisions away from citizens and hands them to lawyers, that installs, you know, five judges dressed like priests, sitting in a fake Greek temple up on a hill with enormous power. And we're there. We we are way over the line. So I want people to start thinking of the Constitution not as a friend, but kind of as a frenemy, um, and to start thinking accordingly about how we structure democracy. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. It was really a pleasure talking to you about this paper. Uh, Thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate it. And the band plays the polka while she strips Take it off, take it off, cries a voice from the rear Take it off, take it off, soon it's all you can hear But she's always a lady, even in pantomime So she stops 
and always just in time. She's as fresh and as wholesome as the flowers in May, and she hopes to retire to the farm someday. But you can't buy a farm until you're up in the chips, so the band plays the polka while she strips. Take it off, take it off, all our customers shout Down in front, down in front, while the band beats it up But she's always a lady, even in pantomime So she stops, and always just in time She hates corny waltzes and she hates the gavotte. And there's one big advantage if the music's hot. It's a fast-moving exit just in case something rips. So the band plays the polka while she strips. Drop around, take it in. It's the best in the West. Take it off, take it off, take it off. You can yell like the rest. Take her off when it's over. She's a peach when she's dressed. But she stops and always just in time, time, time. Queenie, queen of them all Queenie, someday you fall Someday church bells will chime Mike, Mike, it's the polka time, church bells will chime It's the polka time